listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Got a hot mic here. Hot mic. Check one, two. Hot mic. You got a hot mic over there? The red button has been pushed, Kirk. I love pushing the red button. We haven't said that in a long time. Well, that's because our squad cast changed the format and the red button isn't as like, I don't know, in your face. But what is in my face yeah. right now is you and your screen name. Uh, albeit four letters in total. It says, I ran. Mm-hmm. I don't know this. Like a boss. I bet. Tell me more. I ran at 22.5% incline and I did 30-30 walk run. And then I did 60-30 walk run. First run back after taking three plus weeks off? First run and then second run, yeah. Three three weeks of no impact whatsoever. I've been uh, hiking uphill Whoa. and doing uh, heavy, slow reps of lifting, focusing on the concentric movement. He's back, folks. Is he back? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But I'm rebuilding appropriately. And I believe I'm doing a lift that many people, most people have never done in their life. And I think it's partially why this healing fact, this healing process will go well. Uh, what is that lift? I'm doing concentric squats. Okay, explain. Front squats. I'm using a power rack with it set at the bench press setting and the back squat setting. And I rack it at the bench press. I get underneath it and in, a, in like a... 80% of my full squat position, take the load there and slow uh, like 10 to 12 count up to full squat, rack it, and then reverse clean it back down to the bench position to avoid doing the eccentric squat motion. You don't want your muscles working while they are elongating based on your Correct. condition. Got it. Correct. Have you ever had to do that? Never heard of anybody really having to do that, to be honest. I understand the theory based on the injury um, but no, I've never prescribed it nor done it. Yeah. I'm just trying to read everything I could about how to heal this. And I talked to a guy I actually work with Jared Price, who is a doctor and he talked with a physio friend of his and he's like, yeah, just do things that focus on the concentric obviously. But one good one is do box step ups, step up with your injured leg and step down with the, the strong leg. And that's good and everything, but I hate weighted box step ups they're dumb and that only continues to work an imbalance mm -hmm. which i'm trying to avoid so anyways but that line of thinking that it was a, i mean it's a great suggestion and for a lot of people i'm sure they'd love doing weighted box step ups but that got me thinking how could i just do the up portion of the squat and since back squat is <coughs> you can just handle more weight i wouldn't be able to safely clean that down reverse clean that down mm -hmm. Uh, I just stuck with front squat. So that's what I've been doing several times per week. Well, yeah, the theory is, and we don't need to go too far down this, but you're trying to maximize power output with minimizing damage um, to the muscle Correct. itself. And when you have a muscle that's already damaged due to overuse or an imbalance, you're trying to trying to initiate some sort of engagement of that muscle without causing damage to something that's already damaged. So in th the theory of that makes makes perfect sense for your unique injury. Yeah, and I want to keep tension on the insertion point of that yeah. quadriceps tendon. And I want it to be heavy enough to load it. 
but I don't want to put force under eccentric motion right now, which is also why hiking at 30% and jogging at 22, 25 was too stressful on my like Achilles and calves right now because I'm not used to running. But 22.5 was like the highest I could go without feeling weird on my rear chain. So that's what I'm working on. You don't take eccentric uh, loading running uphill. You don't. Not many people can run at 22.5%. So um, you're living this uh, rose-tinted life already, and you don't even know it. Do you need a throat lozenge, Bracken? This is day 10 of being sick, and my cough's getting worse. So Bracken need... keeps muting himself, and once in a while he misses it, and he coughs. So you're just going to, I think, deal with that today. Um, well, glad to have you back, Bracken. Let's hope it continues to progress. Um, on my end... Um, have you ever seen that T-shirt? It says, uh, tummy ache survivor. <laughs> I have not, but I assume it's a real thing. Yeah, you see it advertised to you on um, on like social media. It's like on the like trash can Paul or like the, you know, shithead Steve things. They advertise those things. Anyways, I think I need somebody needs to buy me that shirt. I am, I am a tummy ache survivor, Bracken. How serious is this affliction? Going on two days, back, and I um, I injured myself. I think a tummy ache injury uh, on Monday. I kind of talked to you about it, but even now I have what I would consider a tummy ache hangover, and it's forty eight plus hours past the initial tummy ache. Well, do tell the full story. <laughs> um, yeah, you just keep eating your hamburger over there. Um, so I went for a quality workout on Monday. Woke up feeling normal, feeling good. I had planned a six-mile tempo run plus 10 by 60-60 intervals to finish. So a good amount of time under tension. Be like seven to eight miles of quality work. And my tempo I prescribed myself was like 15 seconds faster than predicted marathon pace. So that's a tempo, not a threshold run, folks. I had a pace I prescribed myself, not a heart rate. Someone's going to chime in and be like, that's not a tempo run. That's not threshold. Well, it might not have been threshold. For a while, guess what? It was below. And for a while, it almost breached. So whatever. Anyways, right. I have five miles into my tempo run back, and things are going well. I'm going 525, 526, 525. I'm clicking right where I want to be. I wanted to run between 525 and 530. And then at mile five, <clears throat> I was like, oh, my stomach just turned. This doesn't happen to me. If you're like me, like a lot of runners, like you wake up, you have your breakfast, you have your coffee, things work as they should, you go out and run. It's this dreamy world I usually live in, but not on Monday morning, Bracken. And so five and a, five miles in and this thing hits me, hits me like a freight train. I'm like, oh my God, I've never had this happen to me before. And I have a mile left in my tempo. I don't want to stop, but I'm like clenching every muscle in my body while running, trying to hit pace. And I'm hitting it, but barely. And I realize I can turn around and go home and it's almost a mile or I can alternate my route and go a half mile to the local park, which would have me finishing almost right where my tempo run should end at about six miles. I can use a porta potty at the park and then everything will be good. Well, I get to mile five and a half. I decide to reroute to the park and I can't. So I have to stop, which pisses me off because I'm five and a half into a six mile run. Things are going great. And I think I deserve like a medal of honor or something for the effort I put out there on the streets by myself to make sure nothing bad happened. He's coughing again. We've all seen those videos of, of dash cams or backyard security cams oh. catching someone pooping in the yard. 
It was the biggest effort I've put forth in years. Bigger than a max squat. It's a clench? A, a clench plus a fist up there, in a sense, plus <laughs> squishing my butt cheeks together with my hands, plus every muscle in my body forcing something to not happen. It was three minutes of contractions. I have to imagine be like birthing a child, but trying to keep it in. It was so painful. So I walk back and forth thinking uh, it's over and it starts to kind of go away. I'm like, okay, you can get, you can do this. You can do this. So I get back right up to pace, make sure I'm back on split, hit that last mile in 525. It's building, building, building. I get to the park right at six miles. And now it's like, I have no option but to go. And they pulled the porta potty because it's winter. So I round the corner. It's gone. How would you feel in that situation? Beyond devastated. Because your body looks forward to it and it's ready to relax. It knows it's it's allowed to do that in like 10 seconds. My heart rate, because I was clenching my core, my glutes, everything, while still trying to run 525 pace, went from like 167 to 181. Because I was so... You still hit pace? I hit pace. You're a champion. And I get there and I stop and it is another three to five minutes of the worst it's the worst three to five minutes I've experienced in a long time. Well, the problem is, is now I ran further from home to go to this park. So now I'm two miles from home when I could have been home already at this point. Like I could have basically been there. So now I have to get back. I remember an old construction site at a house that had construction. I decided to reroute even slightly off course to be like, it's going to be there. They were done with construction. Porta potty wasn't there. I basically run walk in the most pain I've ever been in. And then it just like goes away. Like it just gone after like, I'm going to say 10 minutes of pure battle with this thing. I've never had that happen. You just resorbed it? I think it went up to my brain because I haven't been right since. <laughs> and so anyways, not that, you know, we all have our stories, but this was something, this is actually a PSA or a public service announcement to don't do what I did. So I think I hurt myself. Because I haven't been right since Monday morning. I mean, legit. Like, I mean, feeling terrible. Headaches. Like, my stomach feels like there's two jars of peanut butter sitting in there. And I feel kind of, like, chilled and off. Like, I haven't been able to sleep. Like, my gut hurts constantly. I'm not joking you. I feel, like, a little hungover. I mean, I've gone to the bathroom since. But whatever I did there, like, internally caused problems. Wow. And it's been two days of just nonsensical stomach issues. So I don't think I'll be going for runs without like a Ziploc baggie and prepared moving forward, even though I never deal with this. And also like, you know, when you're pushing or holding too hard, not worth it, folks. It's been 48 hours of kind of misery. And I think my like homeostasis is resetting. So don't be a hero. Just go in somebody's driveway if that's what comes to. If you got to go on the dotted line in the middle of the road. I, I wouldn't choose the driveway, at least by the curb. When I was clenching, walking back and forth, it was going to happen right in the road. I thought that was it. Like it, was, it didn't matter. It was It's uncontrollable. But anyways, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do it. It's not worth it. My stupid splits weren't worth it. What's another half mile of running? And I'm starting to turn a corner this afternoon after 56 hours from that point. So... Well, I've never heard of someone injuring their their internal system by holding it. So congratulations. That's new for well, me. Well, there's no blood or there's no, you know, I think I just, I think my system just, my uh, peristaltic motion of your gut, it's what moves things along for you. I think I like 
short-circuited it temporarily. Wow. So that's my story. So I do want that T-shirt. That's it. Well, that's the type of run I come home from sockless. It was 13 degrees out, and I didn't want to. Okay. But I should have. Is there snow on the ground? Yeah. Everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's like sand for a cat. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, tummy ache survivor. I've had multiple, multiple instances of just throwing some stew in in the snow and then just keep balling it over with more snow until you feel like you've you've covered your tracks i would have if it was a recovery run if it was something else anyways you can send your get well soon cards um to me here in minneapolis thank you so you haven't technically survived the tummy ache yet well i can see the light at the end of the tunnel it's progressively gone okay. we don't need to dwell on it but it's i mean i've been running for 39 years and anytime this has happened i've allowed myself to go found a bathroom and it doesn't happen to me that often um but I put out a 12 out of 10 effort to not allow it to happen. Like, I mean, it was the, I'm not joking with you when I tell you that it's the best performance of my life in anything I've ever done. <laughs> wow. If any of you felt what I felt, I think you would agree with me, but you you exceeded your ceiling in something in my pain threshold, in my exertion tolerance, in my Valselva maneuver, whatever you want to call it, I've exceeded all expectations. Oh. So, um, it's not worth it. Point being, just don't do it. Just, Worry about your workout afterwards. Let it out and be be okay. Don't be a tummy ache survivor. I got it, people. Don't be a hero. Yeah, don't be a hero. I was a yep, unsung, unrecognized hero out there. So I just <laughs> felt like I needed to get this off my chest. We had someone stop by and pick up something we were selling on Facebook Marketplace a few days ago. And they asked about the running public because I was wearing something of it. And they might be tuning in for the first time. And this is their intro to what we offer as a professional, respected podcast. Sorry about that. That or welcome. Hello and thank you. If you made it this far already and you're still curious what's coming next, thank you. I had a buddy, and then we'll move on. I had a buddy on a run in college who had this moment, and there was no nothing in sight that was an option. And he, I witnessed this, and that's like, why don't more people do this? He just went up to a residential door and knocked on it and said, I really have to go to the bathroom. And some older gentleman answers like, yeah, go like fine. And he went in, blew it up, came back and we continued our run. It was the second door he knocked on the first one. Um, nobody answered. Like I could have done that. Yeah. And I think, I think they would have said, yeah, I would say yes. Would you say yes? If it was clearly a runner. Yeah. Well, yeah. In that case, like I had sweat. I was like, it was clear. I was out there actually running, not coming in to rob them or something. Hmm. Anyways, if you want to stop at my house, guys, you're always welcome. You ever watch that, I think it's on YouTube, documentary, Transamericana? Mm-mm. It's a, a Solomon athlete. Oh, I'm blinking on his name. I should know this. It doesn't matter. Uh, he runs across America. And he's at a low point, and he's it's hot, and he's going through this low-income area. And he knocks on this door, and the guy comes out. He's like, hey, can I just, can I borrow your your spigot? Can I fill up my water bottle? And he looks at him and he's clearly struggling and he just wants to use his hose. And he goes, uh, no, no, man, sorry. <laughs> and, and this guy just looks at the camera and just turns away so forlorn. Just like a little puppy dog who just got kicked right in the mouth and just turned away and just kind of like 
walked with his tail between his legs down the road to try to find someone else who would let him have water. Mm. It was so depressing to watch. If you have to go to the bathroom that badly to knock on somebody's door and they tell you no, you have an instant, you know, backfire. You're just like, okay, and then you drop your pants and you do it right on the porch. <laughs> Be like, so you'd prefer I do it here then. Gotcha. <laughs> exactly. It's always your out. So lessons learned folks lessons learned uh if anybody knows actually i would be curious i haven't done the google search yet or the webmd but if anybody actually knows what happens to your body when you do something like that like you hold your pee long enough your bladder explodes like that can happen not explode but it can you know rupture and then that can be bad can you do damage by holding diarrhea too long okay well let's not dive too far into that but if anybody knows um be very curious um let's move on Brecken. i know you're i can see your eyes going crazy here reading whatever you just scum you well it's the first things that are not issues that i think you're dealing with okay do you want to move on to the topic uh of the day here for our friday episode or you want to yeah diagnose right now no i mean unless you have anal fissures or or things like that that we need to discuss nothing outwardly wrong so no or inwardly i don't think okay all right good um I feel so vulnerable. What do you, uh, what, why don't you intro us? I've done enough talking. Today's just about the state of sport. End of the year is approaching. We've had a strange few years due to COVID and whatnot that has led the sport to places it's really never been before. And it's kind of spawned a change in the endurance industry. And we've seen some trends start to manifest in sport. We're talking road, trail, track, triathlon, ultras, mountains, OCR, hybrid racing. And uh, I want to discuss it all. I want to I want to just get on a tangential deep dive into the state of running in 2020, where it stands in a historical sense. Well, it's 2022, not 2020. So do you want to talk about 2020 or do you want to talk about... 2022 listen i'm not here to do math <laughs> okay it's not math i guess it's numbers but how about 2022 we go with that maybe we can touch on yeah. 2020 though it's relevant sound good <laughs> i don't i don't worry about what era i'm living in kirk i think when you hold it in too long your co-host becomes dumber i think that's what you're gonna find <laughs> wow <laughs> i might be right you never know osmosis is a weird thing um <clears throat> This is so free-flowing, this conversation idea, in the fact, like, just talking about, and we're talking about the the whole gamut today, whatever, wherever our brains go. I know we have a, an OCR, we probably have, what, 50% running audience and 50% running plus OCR or hybrid uh, sport mm-hmm. audience, I would say. So we actually want to talk about the gamut. But the first place I would like to start with this conversation is from, like, the 10,000-foot view and say, I'm going to walk you into this bracket, of course, but, you know, is there a period of time in running, other than the early, like the 70s, I would say, since the 70s, that we have seen records fall at the rate in which they have fallen or been set? Can you think of a time? Only the quote-unquote EPO era, mm. like the 90s late 90s, early 2000s, where you saw a bunch of world records get set that haven't been broken until recently or not at all. 
Okay. But yeah, this is top three, I think, eras of just records falling. National records, course records, and world records. And Olympic records. Right. So base okay, so I think there was a big push in the seventies, the running craze they called it when like people picked up jogging and Nike was developing and Bowerman made going out for a run cool, which is impossible to think, but it did become sort of a common thing. You didn't just go jogging before that. And this whole new field developed and interest picked up and new blood and people had shoes with actual spikes on them and the tracks were improving and people were setting records in every distance along the whole way from the marathon to the 100 meters in the 70s. And we've had incremental world records improvements throughout time, of course, but you look at waves and you're right. That mid to late 90s, a lot of those records could be and some have been taken back, but a lot of it Mm -hmm. was due to... What do you want to call doping, I guess? Yeah. The early 2000s. And then suddenly, like, there's these records that were on the board that seemed like, will anybody ever run under 143 in the 800? Will anybody ever run under 204 in the marathon? Will anybody? You guys could go on and on. And then suddenly we have the post-COVID era, which has been... Probably more astounding than I would have anticipated, but now I can look back and understand why. And we're seeing this whole influx. And it can even stem to trail FKT routes. It can stem to, mm-hmm. I think we should dissect that that very thing first. Like records are falling. You see it in college cross country. Course records are being set almost every meet. Nobody's run this fast on this course. It's yeah. the exact same course every year. Nobody's, anyway, so... I want to kick it to you. Give you you give us our thought your thoughts on why people are so much faster or breaking through now, and I'll give you mine as well. All right. Well, I think there's three things, and I want to get rid of the first two and just pay them lip service and get them out of the way because it's the third I think is most important. Okay. The first is COVID. It's been well documented that when people couldn't work or couldn't go to big races, they just trained. They had time on their hands and they just put in uninterrupted work didn't have to worry about periodizing for peaking they just worked and people got into the type of fitness that they've never been in before so i think that's number one i agree two would be we are in the next biggest stage of drug use we have designer drugs that have never been available before we have people um, constantly predicting before world and olympic cycles that all right this is the time there's there's a new rumored drug on the horizon and this is going to happen and and we're seeing it and i think there have been 28 or 29 uh kenyans popped this year alone i mean we're at unprecedented distance runners getting caught for drug use uh, it's happening in cycling. You're seeing stuff happen again. It's another era of doping. You believe that some of these records that are still standing, that have been recognized as pure, are done under undetectable do- doping? You've always been a pro doper. <laughs> a, a pro, <laughs> pro. There's a problem. Correct. You're not. You're not. You're not promoting cheating. Yeah. But you've always. You've always erred on the side of. More people are doing it than you think. Yeah. And it's more prevalent than anybody really recognizes publicly. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far into it. I bet you do. I bet you do. I do have the ability to talk about it all day long, and you'll get sick of it. But that's not the point of this. But I do believe that we are in an era right now where there's um, more science behind it than there's ever been, which means that more people are getting away with it. And also more people are getting caught right now. That was part of the uh, the whole COVID thing is that there was no testing for like 
12 to 18 months in certain parts of the country, of, of the world. And so you were kind of, not only were you free to train, you were free to train as you see fit according to your own morals. So I want to be done with that because I don't want to have like this, this negative take on it. But those two absolutely play into this. But the third, and I think this is the most important, is the world has never been smaller or more connected. Every single middle school and high schooler has access to what the pros are doing and what the pro coaches are prescribing. Every single athlete all across the country can message each other in real time and find out what big meet is everyone going to. Let's all let's all go to um, whatever twilight meet. <laughs> or let's all, whoever's trying to break four at high school milers, let's get to the same place. And uh, pro groups are now mixing like never before. You know, they, they, you go to Flagstaff and you have, you'll run in the Ingerbritsons on, uh, you know, Jakob and Jim Walmsley will be running side by side one day on a run. That kind of stuff never mixed and never happened. You go over to Kenya or Ethiopia and you will find more European athletes there and vice versa. You'll have people that all will vacation and do their altitude spots together. So I think you're having a an access of information that's unprecedented and an ease of travel that's unprecedented and the connectiveness and the small nature of the world that is, again, unprecedented. And that leads to breakthroughs. Um, I agree with you. I don't know if it's the most important, but it's tied, in my opinion, with something else. Um, but listen, what, I'm, what we're saying isn't the truth. It's just opinion. So whatever. But, yeah. you know, imagine you go to... Last week, we interviewed one of my athletes, Chad Coleman, talked about the community of OCR, obstacle course racing in Spartan. And suddenly his enemies become his frenemies, become his friends, become his training partners, become his actual like buddies to they're in each other's phones every day. This didn't happen in the 70s, 80s, 90s. We had landlines until the late 90s. And then the accessibility wasn't there until these social media platforms became so easy to look and talk to each other. And that only emerged in the last five years, really. And so you are right. What happened is the professional distance running world has become like your local Spartan OCR. You all go back home and you start messaging each other on Instagram. You start making plans. And people have gone intra-squad, intra-sponsor, or ultra. I guess how would be, would be the ver version of that? Like they're not saying intra, inter. They're going intra sponsor, intra running club, and you're right. They're spreading. People are organizing races. Literally, if you watch the high school, I mean, it's what four high schoolers broke four minutes in the mile this year, or five, and they, a lot of them decided to show up to the exact same race because we're so accessible to each other. The coaches pulled them together. The the they wanted them all to get together, and you see the same thing in the pro fields. These people are training together. They're actually just as much buddies. Watch the, you know, I when we live commentated one of these last, last live streams, I think Blue Mountain, I said, I'm sick of this damn love fest out there with these women loving each other so much and being friends. Like, go go after each other's throats. You go watch the finish line of any major race now, and what happens after they cross the finish line, Bracken? Errol Huggin. They just love each other because they're actual friends, and they make each other better by getting together and showing up to the same places. And it's because of the accessibility. They can just do it now. And you couldn't necessarily do it with ease or for it to be accepted as easily as it is today. And I do think you're right there. I think that when one rises up and you bring everybody else with you and you can do that, it's a real thing. So I agree. It's a good point. I, I follow Christian Blumenfeld, uh, 
since he came onto the scene because I'm fascinated with the Norwegian training style. And I don't know if you've watched any of their videos, but during, uh, in between Olympic cycles and during COVID and everything where they couldn't get to big races, he went and raced a series of 5K road races around uh, Norway. And I believe he was in Bergen, um, Bergen, where uh, Albin lived at the time. Mm. Or, and uh, and they, they had like six guys under 1410 in this race. He ran 1351, one guy went 1354, one guy went 1359, one guy went like 1405. Because they're all just meeting up. Their agents are friends with each other. Some of them just, you know, switch agents to other people that are helping. Like, you you don't just find your agent and stay with them your whole career anymore. Your buddy finds someone that works better for you and you start messaging with them and then you switch over and you're all in the same training group and then they share resources. So these guys are all running these local, I want to say there were like 50 people in this 5K in six broke 1410 they're all in pro kits and it, it was outrageous to watch because they're just using each other the way you're supposed to they're using they're making it a community event and that's trickling down into the general population as well which is we've never had this sort of um socialization before and after a race it always happens at the finish line but now people are 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 finding what races they're going to travel to and go to together through the ease of social media that it's never had before and now they're sharing training plans and sharing coaching ideas or coaches it's it's just that it's the trickle down from the top of everyone's using everyone appropriately yeah and i think um your argument about that stemming from everybody being accessible um like i didn't know like i never felt cool as a runner like I was a runner in high school and I I wasn't cool because I did that. And I had nobody to look at and be like, oh, they're treated like they're cool because they're fast and they do this. Like I was like, um, like sheepishly would tell somebody that didn't know you. Like, what do you do? Oh, I run cross country and track. And you knew exactly what the reaction would be. Oh, oh, you do. Now you have people, kids who are idolizing because athletes are accessible. It's become trendier. It's brought development to younger ages, aspiration to younger ages, because they can see so often their idols and seeing the good side of sport. Of course, it comes with the bad too, but it makes it like, you don't want to do something that's not cool. It's why I went up for the soccer team my freshman year of high school and made it, but then changed my mind because I had to follow what my heart wanted. But nonetheless, I went to the soccer team because I thought it was cool. Like that's where the cool kids were. I was one of the cool kids. Point being is that from now a young age, it is like, like if you, if that is something you gravitate to, you are just like becoming a student and you're 11 years old and you don't even realize it yet. You're the process has started five, six, seven years ago. And now these kids are 20 or 22 and mm -hmm. they have been living and breathing like a state of sport in which we never did Bracken. I mean, I never studied running until my adult life in like my late twenties, early thirties, but these kids are, and they're seeking the best and they're laying a foundation in which mo the sheer volume of young people laying a real foundation with purpose and aspiration because they want to be like their idols who they see every day on social media and have easy access to, I think is really like the basis of what's now coming forth today, whether it's trail running or Spartan um, or 
Olympic track and field. I think that's a big thing. The amount of kids in the pool, in the know, who are aspiring because the availability to it is just so high. And that's seen through with all the young talent we're seeing, even at the high school level. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And so I I do want to get into the ease of information that you can access, but it's the same thing for community. When we were in high school, our community was our team. That's it. If you go to a place where running is not popular, you find your community in 15 seconds by searching Instagram. You can connect and have 300 different like-minded individuals that you can converse with daily and never see in real life. Like it is just so easy to find your community. And as a young person or middle-aged or old, it doesn't matter. If you find your community and you have acceptance there, you are more likely to stay comfortable and stay in that sport. And so I just don't think we're losing people off the rails earlier Mm -hmm. because there's more reason to stay in it. When you find like-minded people, that's a, that's a fertile ground and fertile ground is just easier to find than it's ever been. Yeah. We're having more retention from the young crowd. And we're having an educated, inspired, hungry young crowd because they understand what the top can look like because they're seeing it all the time. And the ones with potential, talent, um, and hard work ethic are just gravitating to it so young that it becomes their identity years before it ever became my identity or your identity. It's like they're like 12 and they're like, yeah, I'm a runner. Like I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like Jakob. Be like, "I, I didn't know a single professional runner when I was 12. I didn't know him until I was college anyways i think that's a big part of it it is i want to use rich ryan as an example right now of why oh whatever oh whatever rich ryan and your world championship that's right but he i feel like is the perfect example of the era that we live in right now so rich is talented rich is a coach rich knows his stuff but he hadn't put it together in a while he had good performances but he hadn't nailed anything and he and I were on the same track in terms of pursuing a new, a newer style of training for OCR in hybrid events, taking stuff that's been done in other venues, track, road, cross country, and triathlon, trying to translate it to hybrid racing. And when I first came into this sport, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you fighting that one was pretty good. Like you sucked on a little helium for a second. Continue. I tried to fight her off. <laughs> When I first came into the sport, the process for finding knowledge was find an internet archived article, find a, a actual mainstream article, which was usually runner's world or something that was going to be very vanilla and broad strokes or read a book or find an old interview somewhere, but they were hard to find. What happened here is I found six different sources for this system I wanted to, to really dive into. And one of them was in English and two of them were podcasts in a different language. But what can you do in this day and age? I got the transcript for the podcast and I ran it through a a language converter and got it in English. And it was like 95% accurate. So I could get everything out of it. And then I read two foreign language articles in English that was freely translated and then found one source that was actually in English. And I learned so much from those. So of those six or seven things... Only one of them could I have probably found when I first started coaching, and it probably wouldn't have been able to be easily found because the internet wasn't so searchable back then. Hmm. So then Rich and I get on probably four different 90-minute Zoom calls, something that didn't exist when I first came into coaching, and we chatted everything through. And then we sent each other links, and we had a shared document that we worked off of, and we just kind of brainstormed of how could you build the perfect hybrid training plan. 
man, he went out and he put this plan, he put his plan into effect and he nailed it and he won a world championship. Now, could Rich have done that without me? Yeah. Could he have done it without these articles? Yeah, probably. But he didn't have the option in the past to do that. Ten years ago, this, this we wouldn't have been able to pull this kind of like mind meld thing off. Or he wouldn't, like how would Rich and I have met ten years ago? Mm, Tinder. We would have communicated through email if we were even aware of each other. It just wouldn't have been as powerful. And so he was able to pull from something that's happening in the middle of Europe and has been building for 20 years over there. We were able to pull from that and translate it directly to our sport because of just the ease of access of modern communication and technology and information. And he got a world title off of it. Not entirely off that, but I'm not convinced that if we, if he doesn't stumble upon this kind of thing and enact it, that he pulls off what he pulled off. And I think that's the same thing for all these marathoners, track athletes, OCR athletes who are doing crazy new things. I don't think they pull it off to the same extent without what we have now. Why don't you just go ahead and just take full credit for his win right now? <laughs> that's not why don't, why don't you quit beating all. around the bush and just <laughs> no. tell us straight? The, the, the straight truth is that I wrote a proposal of how I would trade for it. He wrote his what he was going to do. We looked at the two and they were already remarkably similar. And then we we picked each other's brains back and forth. I had very little change on his, but our our cohesive understanding of how to go about this was very much well-rounded by each other. So no, Rich would have won worlds with or without me, but it was easier for having access to each other. Double threshold training? There's a lot of double threshold training in mm-hmm. there. That's in conversation for another day, but yes, it is. That's a thought. Um, you're right. You're absolutely right. The fact that we're sitting here and it's so mainstream and easy to start a podcast and we're puking free information on you constantly is a shining example. Um, whether it's taking a 30-minute 5K-er and making them a, a 28-minute 5K-er or it's taking a 14-minute 5K-er and making them a 1255K-er, I doubt we're doing much of that, but you get my point. Yeah. And what would you have done when we were in high school or college? If you wanted to find what Jakob was doing, you would have to find press clippings you would have to find the rumors of someone who saw his training log three seasons ago at an altitude training camp. And then you would have to find every interview he ever gave in a newspaper and find out what was accurately transcribed and what wasn't. And you're getting three sentence snippets. Now you can go on a podcast that he did and they talked for like he, Gert, his dad talked for like two hours on a podcast last year. Mm-hmm. It's not in our language, but you can get a transcript of it. So you just wouldn't even have the opportunity to find truth like that. Yeah. Do you want to add more to um, more angles to that? Otherwise, I'm ready to to move to the next. But it's very powerful. I could not agree more. And there's a million ways you can you could feed that that monster of just sharing information. And it's starting younger. And now that younger crop is becoming of competitive age. And so you combine it all. And here we have some monsters. Yeah. No, I think I think we did that service. I think it's uh or we did that, you know, it's it's due diligence. I think we can move to the thing that I assume you say is tied for the importance, which would be advancements in gear and technology. No? No. I mean, yes, but um I no, I I wanted to actually retract to one of the things you wanted to gloss over uh COVID in 2020. Um yeah. I I'm a huge proponent of rest. I'm a huge proponent of seasons of life. 
and I'm a huge proponent of training without the distraction of racing. All of those three things, I think, are important to eventually performing your best. Going monk mode, to call it. Not pushing through because you have a race in two weeks in Oslo. Not beating yourself to death every day in a training camp because you're the 12th out of 12 guys that made the sponsored team and you're just hanging on for dear life every day, driving yourself in the dirt, proving yourself every time you put your shoes on. My athletes and your athletes who race, I got a couple of them right now who are just out of their minds racing at the end of the year. Like, For an example, Bracken, when you, when you listen to athletes talk and it's August – and it's the Olympics. And they say, what do they say? They say, it's been a long season. I'm just hoping that I can maybe run close to my best because we've been racing so much. You hear it all the time. We've raced so much. Like he's just hanging on. Well, no. I mean, you should be your best. You've been racing all year. It's August. You should be more fit in August than you were in April. You have four months of training. You should be faster. It's August. You won't hear one professional athlete say that ever in the history of forever. No. You actually get worse or the potential to get worse. You hit your peak way less sharply and way less often. You have to get everything so right because of fatigue. And so you'll see people only reference the fact at the end of the season that it's been a long year and I haven't been able to perform. Not it's like been a long year, got myself into shape. Doesn't work that way at all. And so the point I want to get at is we had over a year really where people weren't forced to a schedule. They weren't forced. When we train, we put money in the bank. We put money in the bank. We make our bank deposits. And then when we race, the first few races, we actually throw a little more money in there. First couple races, two, three races, somehow it like adds to our bank account. It's like magic. And then it stops. And then every race is just gouging out money out of your bank account from thereafter. It's like gouging it out. You see these big gains from your first big efforts where you like sell your soul out on the course and then afterwards, it's only interest, and you are just paying interest on all of it. And so my my roundabout way of getting at that is for the first time in some of these athletes' career, maybe decades, they were actually just only putting money back in their bank for the most part instead of just interest being taken out and gobs of money being pulled out every weekend, traveling crazy itineraries across the ocean to run a 400-meter race, like People have a hard time traveling across the country to go only run a Spartan sprint. Like people travel 20 days in a row to run 100 meter races. People wrap your mind around that. But the point I'm getting at to run for less than 10 seconds, the point I'm getting at is we had a whole crop of people just able to absorb it for once, not be distracted. We preach this to no end about not racing too much and all that, but the pros are held to certain standards and there's a season in which they race and that's okay. But I just think that people were able to actually absorb and not take more money out than they were putting in for a longer time than they've been able to in years. And then we had, if there was racing, it was very purposeful, organized events that were set up for success. And then thereafter, we just have a reinvigorated crowd that actually just laid a little more cement in their foundation to their building that they normally couldn't do due to obligational reasons with contract sponsors and racing. And so, um, <clears throat> and then you have a hungry crowd who's been starved. If you're deprived of oxygen, you're going to gasp that first deep breath and it's going to feel amazing. And you have people who revolve their lives around racing and then it's pulled from them for a year. And all of that comes together into the fact that we see a big uptick in not only the 
top tier, but the number of guys right behind them. Like the like everybody rose up a little bit, and now the pack is four percent better than it used to be. And I think it's all because mm-hmm. of not all. I think largely because of that. You can argue me if you want, because you wanted to kind of move past that. But I think it's more important than people. No. Um, than some people may recognize. No, I don't want to argue that at all. I think it's it's absolutely right. It's just been to me we we we've talked about it enough that I didn't feel like I needed to to spend as much of my time on it cuz I was more interested in the community side but no I can't I don't think I could undersell how much that did and what it did is it taught some people the power of going all in for a bit True. of an extended block of training of hitting a cycle or two before going in you know wasting not wasting but jumping into that racing lifestyle where you're just treading water in between and that it changes your fitness well, you know better. You f- probably follow the professional running scene better than I do. Like I'm getting better, um, but I feel like you like actually like can't you like can't function unless you're up to date on the <laughs> ongoing. Uh, no, it's a compliment to your dedication to the sport. Um, well, why don't you describe like what like a uh, uh, April through August might be for a professional distance runner? Trail, track and field. Like. Well, Describe what that might be, like the week-to-week, month-to-month, day-to-day, like for example, to understand the stress they're going through that they didn't have to go through for like a year. Well, if you're sub-half-marathon distance, then if you're a pro, you're most likely following the Diamond League track season. And there are races at least every seven days, most weeks throughout this time. And there are some races where there are midweek Diamond League races where you could race twice in in a in a week and throughout Europe, this is where most of it takes place. Although now there are U.S. Diamond League, which really complicates things because now you have mm-hmm. a trans-ocean um, flight, which doesn't matter which side of the ocean, which ocean you're crossing, what side of the globe you're coming from, that complicates things. So a lot of times <laughs> you're looking at 30 to 60 days without going home and you just go race to race. And since you're in on this, if there are local races there, that are going to throw a couple hundred or thousand dollars at you for either appearance fee or prize money, you end up racing those too if you're not one of the big dogs pulling in big bucks. So you might go over there for seven Diamond League races and race 21 times because you're paying the bills other ways. And that lifestyle is just A, stressful, and it's hard to build. It's really hard to arrive at the end. It's like a rookie going to the NFL or NBA or MLB where you might start out pretty darn good, but partway through the season, you realize, I've never played this many games in a season in my life. College, we played 16 games in basketball, or 22 games. I'm supposed to play 82 here? Baseball, I'm supposed to play over 150 games in a row, basically? Like You just don't have the stamina to make it through. You arrive broken at the end. You don't arrive stronger at the end. And that's what happens in running as well, which is at least compared to baseball, (laughs) which is at least compared to baseball, much more impact and recovery based baseball players get done with a a game and they'll go in the clubhouse and they'll lift. That's not happening after a 10 K on the track. So it's just a very stressful life. Plus you have your national championships that you have to think about doing. If you want to make a national team, you got to do that. But if you want to make worlds, well, you can either make that through your country or by getting ranking in the in the world and the only way to get world ranking is to race at highly competitive races and so you're kind of getting it from both angles you need to get out there and make money but you also want to satisfy your national team obligations 
There's just endless races to be done and they all come with travel. And because most athletes are not paid like NBA, MLB, NFL players, you're not getting these first class tickets where you got your lay flat seats and you're doing everything right. You're flying, you're flying just regular coach seating and you're not sleeping well and you're not staying in these really fancy places. You're paying out of pocket for physio work when you get there. It's it's not the glamorous lifestyle you'd expect. Time zone changes weekly, new hotel weekly, food, food in a country in which you're not from and having to navigate that, the stressors of being away from loved ones and your home, feeling isolated at times in a way, just you and your two travel partners who are your teammates who are doing this, um, eventually wears on you. You end up having two weeks in between races, bless if you do, and coach decides we need to go to Flagstaff for 10 days to get some training in the mountains before we go back to Europe to race. So you fly all the way, switch 10 hours of time zones, go train at altitude or in the mountains for 10 days, and then go right back. Like it is, it is an exhaustive part and people show up to the later half of the season and, and they're like, I don't know, I'm just gonna roll the dice today. Like it is literally a roll of the dice. Like, did we, did we get this this formula correct where miraculously I'm able to run sub 335 for the 10th time this season in the 1500? Right. Or did I fall one card short in this deck this year, which happens to most? And so, um, good. You did a good job of outlining that. I just want like the perspective. And then suddenly these athletes don't have to do this and worry about it. And these athletes, most of them, other than the Ingebrigtsens, don't eat unless they go race and earn prize money, like the majority of them. So now we focused on. And we focus on professional like track. Let's call that road running as well. Above half marathon, you just can't race as often. So it's a different dynamic. Somebody may run four marathons a year and that'd be like insanity in the professional marathoning world. Two would be typical. Two or three maybe. But um, I actually want to touch on then to give credence to the trail world, the OCR world, uh, some of the other stuff. From this, what happens is I mentioned that I believe the lump sum of us as a community as a whole have risen, whether it's because of COVID or access to each other and social media, like, like the seat, the floor has been moved up a couple of feet and now everybody hovers here. And there's also twice as many of us, not us. What am I talking? Like I'm in that crew twice as many of them. There's twice as many of them now. And I think twice is a fair accurate, just like you've seen in the Spartan series. There's probably twice as many people who can take a top 10 in a race than there used to be. Right. There's like, who knows how it's going to shake out between fifth and 15th. Like your guess is as good as mine. And that's also happening in the, in the professional running world. And then what happens is really great athletes aren't making teams are taking 20th place in a track race, running 13, 15 and 5k and taking like 20th. Like what? Nobody's even noticing. Like I'm not getting anywhere. And what that has done, go ahead and watch the golden trail series and see what some of these people's backgrounds are. Go ahead and see some of the people who've come into some OCR races or even the hybrid space and say, well, where did they come from? Well, they used to be first class, first tier runners. They would have been two decades ago or a decade ago, but now they're, they're so good, but they're just not good enough. And they keep running into the door in the professional running scene and they start to dabble. You see a Stephanie Garcia go play in Spartan for absolutely no reason. You see a high level Jim Wamsley go and become an ultra runner in the mountains because he was great but he wasn't great great on the track or on the roads and the short stuff and so what you see is you see that bleed down and a few of these athletes find another route 
where they do something they enjoy. And suddenly you see all these trail re records are being smashed. Every trail route in the last three years have been just demolished. Any old record, even Killing Jornet's records, you know, going down. John Albin smashing records. You see it everywhere. So you have this bleed down effect. And then the fact that people that are in these niche sports like trail running, OCR, any of that are also more studied, have more access so they can figure this out better. So you have the combination of it all and you just have the domino effect. It dominoes down into these secondary and tertiary sports. Yeah. But really most people who are doing it are stemming from some sort of pure run talent or background and they're finding this as a pivot. And that could yeah. be anything from trail ultra marathoning to who, who knows what backyard ultra to Spartan racing. But point being is I think that's part of the equation as well. When we're seeing just like the rise of talent, Bracken and I were having this side conversation like two weeks ago. And I said, you know, Bracken, we should interview somebody who's decided to make the jump from age group to elite in Spartan racing or OCR. And almost everybody I know that's done that has gone back to age group or felt very unsatisfied. And do you remember what your first answer to me was? I was like, we should check that out. You said people in age group don't understand how fast everybody is in the elite field until they're in it. Mm. They don't realize, like the aspirations are great. And some make the jump and it's fantastic. You said people just don't realize how good everybody is in the front of the field. Like I can go out and run a 15, 25K on my own and not take top 10 in a, an elite series race, for example. So the point I'm getting at is it trickles all the way down. Like it, believe it or not, it trickles down. And now what does that mean? That means that you age group athletes are really freaking fast and really freaking good, but you're not good enough for the elite field. And I'm sorry to say, and it's all due to the trickle effect. Five years ago, you'd be on elite podiums. Now you might not be on an age group podium, but I'm telling you, it starts from the top. It starts from the lump sum of good runners. I feel like I'm kind of you know standing on my soapbox right now, but I firmly believe that that's that's yeah. a version of how it works. It is, and and it's it's because in track and road, everyone was always professional. Everyone knew how to do it correctly, and it was always just done that way. You came up through the ranks, but if you pivoted to a more of a niche sport, you had these standalone skill sets or techniques that would just destroy everyone. You looked at the 24-hour ultra scene or the mountain ultra scene, and they were just people who just rocked everyone. Killian was untouchable for years. You know, Jim was untouchable. You look at triathlon, and when people got it right, you had people win six, seven Ironman in a, in a row, mm -hmm. uh, world championships. And it was just dominance. And they always had something way better. When I first came into the sport of OCR, if you knew how to not cramp and not fail things and you could run well... You had a huge advantage over everyone. Now, everyone knows how to avoid cramping. Everyone knows how to fuel during mountain races. You look at the 24-hour, if you look at UTMB, there are no mysteries in how to get ready for it anymore. Mm. The, oh, I'm not ready for poles. That disappeared five years ago. Everyone knows you have to train with poles to be ready for UTMB. You have to have your pack set. You have to be able to pace through the night. You have to have the pounding to be able to go down, you know, just tens of thousands of feet of descent. There's no mystery because everyone's already written about how to do it and how to and talked about how to do it. So the new people that come in with arguably the same or more talent don't hit the same pitfalls that everyone else used to. Triathlon now is just faster than it's ever been, but there's no dominance. Christian Blumenfeld won the Olympic triathlon with somewhat ease and smashed his first Ironman and took third at world championships this year. 
And I think he broke the old championship record while doing so. It's not like he had a bad day. He just ran into two people who were even better than anyone else had ever been at world championships. So there's no there's no safe place to hide anymore. You can't come into mountain running with just one crazy climbing skill set or crazy descending skill set or the ability to handle calories while you run. Everyone can do all those things now because the training has trickled down. The knowledge is everyone reads their race reports. Everyone reads everyone's mistakes and they don't make those mistakes anymore. And like you said, the age group is a shark tank now. Mm-hmm. The people winning age group right now would have been winning elite 10 years ago. Maybe not every elite, but the local stuff. But you see the guys now who will make little regional podiums at big OCR events. Not big, but like major OCR company events. Races we've had recently because of DECA and other things like that. The top guys haven't been at. And there's people making podiums who can't go top 15 at a national series race. Just when the big dogs come out to play, they're all so good. And it trickles down and it bleeds down in every single competitive layer of sport right now. And you also have to think, I'm going to be a little off the rails here, but just bear with me. We just hit the 7 billion mark as a, a, wor- a world, I guess, as Earth goes. 7 billion people on this planet. Okay? Yeah. 20 years ago, let's say you hit your competitive world age at 20 to 25. 20 years ago, what was there? 6 billion? And 20 years before that, there was 5 billion. And what I'm guessing here, some of you be up my butt about that but you understand like this is a numbers game as well and we are multiplying fast and now more and more people are hitting of age and there's more and more people participating in things and there's more and more people and that's like a kind of a weird take to make on this but over time in the 70s if there was 5 million billion people and now in the 2020s there's 7 billion that's two more billion people in the lottery and one of them's bound to get it right. Like <laughs> one of them's going to find the needle in the haystack some, through some arbitrary life living and experience. And so that's, you're just going to see holes being pecked in more and more records due to sheer numbers and sheer freaks being born and then gravitating towards sport and then embracing and performing and da 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 along the line. And so simply like, we're going to see this trend continue out of sheer numbers. You buy enough lottery tickets, you're going to win something eventually, yeah. right? Like, I guess you'd hope. And it's kind of the same same way uh, with humans. And so um, that's like a small snippet of probably why the progression will continue to happen. But it's something like I think about like more than I probably should. Like, why are there so many people? Why are there four people breaking four minutes in high school or six or whatever it was this year? Like all these things had never been done before. I'm like, well... There's twice as many high schoolers right now than there was in 1960. Maybe that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. Combine it with everything else, and there you go. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, I think state of sport right now, in terms of performance, it's not just world records. It's that there are very few secrets remaining. There are always going to be new ways to approach things, but the big secrets, how to fuel, how to train, how to recover, how to choose gear and shoes, all those things are out there for everyone to find. Still, not everyone uses those resources, but they're there. And that means that, like, yeah, from the high end, if I want to be a pro, it might be a little depressing knowing that I have to go against a deeper field of competitors that there's ever been. But for the people who just their goal is to better themselves, there's never been a more enlightening time to be alive. This is it. You can do whatever you want to do because the the information's there for you. I mean, how many... Honestly, between emails and messages on social media, how many a week do you get from people asking for free advice? 
whether it's what shoe should I pick? I have this situation. Like I know we take this on as choosing to be in the public eye slightly, whatever you want to call this. I'm going to say I get a few dozen, even if it's quick little messages or it's, I'm going to say a few dozen where I'm easily accessible because of the world we live in and I'll king, they could just take, take, take. <laughs> yeah. You get the same? I'd say 20 to 50 a week, mm-hmm. depending on our topic and depending on the ebb and flow of the season easily. And that's, those are 20 to 50 questions per week on one small podcast in the world that wouldn't have necessarily all received answers 20 years ago. Exactly. Not even that our answers are perfect. It's just an opportunity. And chances are, if they're reaching out to us, they're sourcing information elsewhere as well. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's the best time ever to be alive in terms of finding out how to do this running thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move either to um, get you some like Sudafed or chloroseptic spray or... Let's move on to technology. Which Let's which one? Tech. You don't want to talk. <laughs> I'm going till I drop, Kirk. Bracken's over there, like literally quivering, trying to hold back coughs. I wish you could see what I see. It's actually quite amusing, Bracken. Not to. God, I'm glad I'm doing that for you. Laugh at your misery, but all right. So let's move to now. What I think is the the elephant in the room. Not so much of an elephant because, yeah, I guess it's an elephant in the room. The technology piece. Um, why don't we talk about it? Because it's it's real. It is. So right now, I'm looking at a later in the year, I'm going to I want to go back and do that Seven Sisters Ultra in Ireland. I just can't get it out of my mind. I don't want to be an ultra athlete. That's not my my bread and butter, but I can't help the fact that I am drawn to that and that race in particular. It's a burr. I just got to get it out. So I'm going to do that. So I am in the process with along with, uh, again, Jared uh, Price. We're going back and forth messaging on getting our kit together. And it's just so symbolic of the industry right now. Every single thing we look into has options that didn't exist or weren't available in a variety back when I first entered this sport. Say I entered the sport in 2012, so 10 years ago. First of all, I'm going to need hiking or trekking poles. At the time, there were only trekking poles. Now there are run-specific poles that weigh a third of what those do. And they have Z-poles, which break down into three different uh, sections that are joined together. And you can tuck them away in your pack easily. Footwear. How many trail... Do you know how many trail shoes existed when I first did my first uh, OCR race, Kirk? Like trail racing shoes? Just trail shoes in general. Maybe one per brand. Maybe, if you were lucky. One performance trail shoe per brand, I would say. And most brands didn't have performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New Balance had was my first one. They had this big clunky, and then they came out with the Minimus next. Nike didn't really have a trail shoe. Peg, they had a Pegasus trail that came out, and it was a cushy trainer. But I remember I got that for the winter. Pegasus Storm, it was called, maybe. I don't remember. It was just like a Gore-Tex shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asics didn't have one. Everyone at the time raced in cross-country shoes or Innovate. Or the or the New Balance Minimus. That that was it. There just weren't options. Like, what would you wear for a 55K trail race? <laughs> you just didn't have options. Brooks had the Cascadia, and almost everyone wore that from through hikers to trail racers. That's just what people wore. There just weren't options. Hoka didn't exist. It wasn't even a brand back then. Uh-huh. So now, like, from hyd- hydration packs, my first couple hydration packs, looking back, which I, I still have them, my waist belts back then weigh more than my whole pack does now. We're just in an age of technology and the maximalism meeting minimalism. 
We have finally reached that. The Nike Free and the Five Finger Barefoot running shoes combined with Hoka has finally made the industry balance into this minimal maximalism where everything's light, everything's robust, everything has high capacity with light materials. We're in a time now where everything supports you or makes you better than it used to. Makes you more durable too and is a byproduct. Yeah. You have people running in alpha flies in which not only propel you forward slightly for some people's gates, but they also minimize your impact so you can run more mileage the next day. You can take less of a hit, thus getting more work with less of a repercussion because of that work. And that filters down into everything you're mentioning, making things a little bit better. And all those little half a percent here, half a percent there, a quarter of a percent here adds up. Yeah, it used to be a, a normal person could do one, maybe two 20-mile runs building up for a marathon. Because you, you're supposed to do it in your, in your race day shoe. You get used to it. When, you, when your options were Nike Streak or you'd bump up to an A6 DS trainer as a lightweight trainer for something to race in, that beat you up. Now, you could go 20 every other weekend if you want, taking less damage. It just allows you to work more. I liked that DS trainer, by the way. I ran in that one in college for speed workouts, and I liked that one. Oh, yeah. I did as well. It worked for me. But nonetheless, technology has still come a long ways from then. That Euro trail marathon you were confused about, that trail marathon that said I ran 232 or whatever when we did that. <laughs> yeah, that when we yeah. I ran that in the DS trainer. They had little grippies on the front on that bottom. It was an interesting little matrix of... Yeah. That was my trail shoe at the time. That's wild because that's not a trail shoe. No. Yeah, so you have that technology. The shoe thing, I think we've, you know, we've beaten that, you know, completely in plenty of episodes. Um, but it's real. And then the advancements in the gears, which you mentioned, there's more science uh, going into fueling strategies um, out on course, better products for sustained energy. Fueling options are just tenfold what they were when I first started looking right. into fueling. Ten, six to eight years ago. Not This is not the correct word, but the biohacking world. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the sense or the therapeutic physiotherapy world. My girlfriend, Jess, works at a professional athlete clinic. That's what she does. And the type of technology they use on those athletes to get them better, the treatments, the procedures, the like the stuff they're getting exposed to that I would never even think of for treating people um, is being offered to high level endurance athletes in which like the advancements, you know, it used to be like you could get cold laser or warm laser and you could get adjusted by the chiropractor and get a massage. Even the lasers are recent. Now there's like these treatments and therapies that aren't miracles, but they're as close as they can be without even being called magic. I mean, my girlfriend sees it performed on people every day at this clinic. And so you also have that, which is getting people in the game faster. And it's, um, it's astounding. If you're at the pointy end of the spear in this in any sport, the availability you have to stay healthy, get healthy, get recovered, get repaired is something that I don't even think I can understand because I'd have to live it to understand it. But I've seen just the a glimpse behind the curtains and I've been treated at this facility that Jess, uh, works at now. And it's just like, it's stupid. It's stupid. The things that can be done and the advancements we've made in recovery, whether it's from injury or just from effort. And so there's another little, what half percent there, just like it's astounding. Every angle you can think of actually every angle you can think of points towards 
advancement, and then all of those angles that point towards advancement, point towards everybody getting better, point towards the trickle effect down into, as we mentioned before, the secondary and tertiary sports. Everything that we're talking about that you don't think applies to you actually does because it applies to why your competition is shoulder to shoulder with you and why everybody has become so good. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw a pair of Normatec boots at a at a gym or a rehab facility? How mm, cutting yeah. edge that was? Oh, yeah. There was a store that you went to, and you'd just rent it. You'd go sit there, and the running store bought two to four pairs, and you'd go pay 100 yeah. bucks an hour to go sit in their Normatec boots. It was like a service they offered. It was that yeah. cool. Now you can get, not knockoff, but lesser brands for 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have been one week or one month worth of rehab at one of those places. Just And that's, that's a minor little detail. But just the way you can take care of your body now is is night and day different than it was. This is a, this example is is pretty irrelevant. But at the clinic Jess works at, it's called Synectics. The doctor has saved me, cured my plantar fasciitis overnight almost, which is astounding. But a couple of weeks ago, Mike Tyson comes in. Mike Tyson, the boxer, right, comes in. Just came home with a boxing glove signed by Mike Tyson. And I was like, well, you got a you got Mike Tyson boxing glove? It's like, yeah, Mike Tyson was in today. He's a really cool guy. Well, Mike Tyson came in. Cause Mike Tyson is broken. He is beat up right now. Mike Tyson been through some stuff, right? He's a professional boxer, one of the greatest of all time. They have a zero-gravity treadmill there that they were looking to upgrade. Mike Tyson is a patient there. He flies in from Vegas to examine and then get this zero gravity treadmill because he's beat up and can't run on his old knees as he would say and uh so he came in to get a zero gravity treadmill so he can continue with his fitness because he's still hitting it really hard but can't like he used to something as simple as that example as like upgrading a zero gravity treadmill mike tyson getting this old zero gravity treadmill because technology is so far advanced that we're getting rid of old technology that would propel a runner, that would make a runner able to run in a situation in which uh, there's no way a runner could run. But I can go on there and put 10% of my body weight on there and go run and work efficiency where I never take 10 steps back due to injury because I've been able to train somewhat like I need to. And that is like a small, small example of the thousands of ways we can work around things now. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example. It just reminded me, I was like, Never thought about even something as simple as that. And so point being, trickle effect is real. Starts with Mike Tyson, ends with why there's too many people in your age group that are fast. That's what I'm getting at. There's too many people on this earth. Too many people on this earth. Got to start doing something about that, Bracken. That's right. Well, (laughs) we've been, outside of that one statement, we've been all positive about the running world. The state of sport is all positive right now. But it's not. It's not all positive. There are some negatives. Hmm? And I think I'd like to kick that off. Okay. First of all, because it's a business, there are always new people jumping into it. Since the pandemic, there's been another rush of uh, people trying to capitalize on endurance sports. And our sport is too um, informed and data-driven for like snake oil salesmen to come in and kind of shark you. But they try. And it screws people over. We've had a lot of events come up measured short. A lot of events not meet the required uh, measuring protocol for USATF and for USA road running. 
We've had a lot of Boston qualifiers get nullified. Mm. We've had people train for six months for an event, and someone changes the course the day before. <clears throat> people who don't have experience in the space have been making mistakes. I don't know if you recently saw Camille Heron. She set the 100-mile uh, world record, broke her own, I think, in January or something like that. It recently was uh, de-ratified, or just they decided not to ratify it because the course was short. So they made a last-minute change to the course and didn't pay to have the uh, A-certified course measurer measure it. So, and I'm not saying that race director is not seasoned or uh, is just doing it to make money, but you see a lot of issues these days with people not doing their due diligence from a race direction standpoint. And it overshadows the thousands of race directors out there who are just doing it right and for the right mm. reasons. Basically, if you put on a race to make money, you're going to screw up. If you put it on to put on a an uh, event for people to go out there and celebrate being able to run, you're probably going to check the boxes. So I think that's one place our sport is failing right now is because people are too into, maybe not too into, but so into qualifying for Boston or setting a PR or things like that, that they're getting screwed over when race directors don't hold up their end of the bargain. There has been more and more drama as the years have gone on in yeah. in sport. I will say these things that happen that basically take away achievements from athletes or the athletes are giving them away because they're fringing the line of morality. Yep. But uh, a lot of newsworthy situations, and you see it even in the like, the tertiary sports like OCR even. And you're right. That's when things become – everything has become a business mm -hmm. because everything is intertwined now. And so you're right. You have people who are not qualified. I can name a few. I'll refrain even in some of our close niche sports that we talk about that really aren't qualified or should be making decisions yet are. You yep. do see that a good bit of bureaucracy now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. My second negative with the state of sport right now is people are spoiled because of wave-like technology, which is that light pacing system that has been a part of all the 5K and 10K track records in the last year. <laughs> because of super shoes, because of Eliud Kipchoge, because of these spectacle events where they just chase world records, we're spoiled. You see people in the comments or in forums after races like, oh, that was such a slow time. Why would I bother watching? Because racing is racing. When races first started, it was just a contest to see who could get to one point first. Not necessarily time-based, just first. That's it. Not even necessarily distance based. It'd be like they wouldn't even know how far it was. Just win the race. Yeah. yeah, just point to point. Get back to this spot after going around that spot. And that is racing at its purest form, just out there competing. And I love world records, and I love a good record chase, and I love when people are partway through the marathon on pace, and it's that will they blow up, will they not. That's fantastic. But we've gotten spoiled by it to the point where we discredit phenomenal performances if they don't set a record in route. Oh, it's my biggest pet peeve right now in day and age. Yeah. The most toxic part of our sport is the fan base. Now, it's not everyone, but the most toxicity outside of toxic coaches and agents at the high level, not all of them, but some of them, 
The next biggest offenders are our toxic fan base. There's a big sect of the running fan base that is truly toxic. And I don't use that word very often, even though I just said it like six times in 30 seconds. Never heard you use it. We still have, we still have a rotten core of the running community. The, the couch um, dwellers who just sit on the couch and use those Twitter fingers. And it still has not improved. With ease of access to technology, that hasn't improved. Yeah, Matthew Centrowitz ran the slowest time in 1,500-meter Olympic recent history and won the gold medal. They ran like 355 or something, right? 350 on the dot. Normally, I think Jakob won in 329, 328. Yeah. Matthew Centrowitz said, Centrowitz, the trolls just came out. That is a worthless win. It doesn't even count. He's an Olympic champion and may have run the best race anybody has ever seen executed even though it was 20 seconds slower than his potential but the ones who don't understand which is unfortunately the majority of you because you haven't raced 1500 meters at a high level don't realize that might be the one of the best performances in human history not because of the time but because of what it took to win that race based on how it was run so you are correct there. Now we just want to see fast times, world records. If you don't, it's discredited completely. And he unfortunately will be by most. Mm-hmm. Although you could argue because his time was what got 24 seconds slower than the world record, which is astounding in a 1500 meter. But he beat everybody because he was better at least yeah. that day. Anyways, that's a shining example of that. His is like the, the North Star of people discrediting yeah. wins. Because of time. And and because we ran track, we understand that sometimes you have to work a year or two to get a PR. Like a tenth is hard to come by. And so times are never guaranteed, but gutsy performances are. And we're spoiled by the fact that people are so good right now, they keep smashing course records and world records. But if Jim Walmsley goes back to Western States after a year off and doesn't break his course record and wins, part of the community is going to be very disappointed. Mm-hmm. To the point, it's to the point where these good, these great athletes have made a hundred miles seem like a gimme. Like finishing isn't impressive anymore. Running hard for a hundred isn't impressive anymore. Breaking a course record's impressive. In the eighteen hundreds, nineteen hundreds, finishing a marathon and not dying because of the effort was considered <laughs> a feat. A hundred miles is still a hundred miles of running. And people have forgotten that because people like Jim make it look so effortless and fast. Adam Peterman is rolling through. He is not even the next big thing in ultra anymore. He might just be the big thing. He is crushing. I still don't think he's lost an ultra. And I think he set a course record at all but one that he's done. He is the next big thing. And you know who's making a big deal about him? pretty much only the hardcore fans of ultra world because we're used to it we're just used to people being studs and breaking course records it's we're getting desensitized to it i think it's time to remember that if you went out and set a record or even pr'd or even finished and had a good day you'd be over the moon and you'd be telling every one of your family members how you rocked that race it's time to extend that same courtesy to everyone else in the running world we don't have to set a record to have done something spectacular I didn't know we were going to take a negative angle on things, which these are very, these are light negative things, right? These are trivial things. These are just two old men just that want to be grumpy, um, in a sense. Uh, 
I have those tendencies more and more as the days tick by. I mean, have you noticed that with me a little bit? No. I for sure am becoming more and more of that guy. Just the surly, like, back in my day or how it used to be, the good old days. Like, that's becoming I me. Mean, the more white hairs in my beard, I notice that I gravitate more and more towards that uh, perspective. But I hate to tell you folks, but you are perpetually going to feel slower and slower compared to everybody else. You are going to feel slower and slower and slower because there's more and more people right next to you, but there's more and more people in front of you. And more and more people in front of you because of the sheer volume of competitors out there who are good. And you will most likely perpetually feel inadequate. I mean, I I have a very healthy self-esteem and ego. But deep down, deep down, I understand where my place really is in the running world. And, and it is a chuckle-worthy position compared to who's a top-tier uh, national or world-class mm-hmm. athlete. And so the feeling of inferiority is going to just constantly be getting worse because of the number of people who um, are literally on this planet participating at a higher rate than, and level than you. Yeah. We used to have – what was it, Bracken? Oh, I don't know. Let's just say we go back and we look at U.S. marathon men. And we say back in 2000, we had the year 2000, so 20 years ago, maybe we had 40 American men run under 220 in the marathon that year. Let's just say, I don't know the exact statistics. Yeah. What would what would you say? 40 under 215? 40 under 220? No. If you had a guess, I would 40 under 220. Under 220, oh man, maybe 20. And I think one broke 210. I think probably Khalid Kanuchi okay. was the only one. Okay. So let's say we had 20. I'm going to look that US up while Mar- you chat. Okay. Let's say we have 20 U.S. marathoner men that ran under 220 in the year 2000. In 2022, how many U.S. men have run under 220 in the marathon? Are we, We're well over 100, aren't we? Could we be in the 200 range? I, I can't even tell you, but it's more than quadrupled. You at home, you're still a four-hour marathoner, but yet the top end just keeps accumulating more and more and more of the fast people. And so you look at results and you're like, I am just so slow, but you're wrong, but you're right. <laughs> you're right yeah. because there's just more people that are going to be fast due to everything we've been talking about, but it doesn't necessarily apply to you the way it applies to the top end of the sport. And so, uh, into perpetuity, uh, if we play the comparison game, um, you are going to feel slow. You just will. And it's just how you handle it. You have to give up on that. Yeah, you do. Of course you do. Yeah. We've said it before. Comparison is the thief of joy. And Mm. that that doesn't just apply to you. Just doesn't apply to your 5K times. It steals your joy to compare previous course winners to other previous course winners and say, oh, that wasn't very good. That's not enjoyable as a fan to be like, oh, they won, but their time sucked. That's being negative. So comparison is the thief of joy when all you expect are records. We need to get back to just appreciating the amount of effort that goes into some of these races. Yeah, and I'm not even necessarily meaning this in a negative way. I'm just saying because the front end of sport is advancing as it is, and yes, it bleeds down. um, I am just saying like it is what it is. Your result may look worse comparatively than it used to. If you were competing with such um, commitment 20 years ago. It's just is what it is. 
And so like just being like, okay, like, okay, whatever. Like that's just, there's just more people doing this at a decently high level. There's more people who are four hour marathoners hiring coaches like me and Bracken there that, that are now three forty coaches. Like everybody else is so accessible that like the, everybody has a reason to like be faster other than you, so to speak. It's like how it feels. And I'm just saying like, that's sort of like where we're at. So if you feel a little sluggish compared to the top end, welcome to the club. Yep. I don't care if you're a 15 minute five care like me, or you're a 30 minute five care. We all feel the same way. I think is what I'm getting at. I'm not just speaking to the five hour marathoner. I'm speaking no. to the two thirty marathoner in which I believe I am right now being like, what's the point? <laughs> like what, yeah. what am I going to do? Hang that metal on my wall with, with 5,000 other Americans who did it this year. Great job, Kirk. It trickles to everybody is what I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Did you find anything good? Well, in 2000, the Olympic Trials Marathon had nine people break 220. It was one in 215. There you go. Do we have the most recent Olympic U.S. Marathon Trials? How many were under 220? Can you look that up? I mean, courses, weather, all that does matter, but this is just a quick... Uh, 27th place was 215. So 27th was 215, and only nine were under 220 in 2000. Okay, I mean, that's enough enough said right there <laughs> yeah and it went from being one in 2015 to what 206 207 yeah you made our point you you brought up the point kirk so anyways don't you be don't home. be stingy with your with your cheers and your in your admiration don't just want records let's celebrate the way you would celebrate it if all right so it was one in <coughs> 215 in 2000 215 i believe 215 30 would have taken tied for 24th Enoch Nadler who by the way is one of I think three or four people I've ever raced in OCR who beat me and I never beat them he showed up to the Texas uh the Dallas Spartan Beast in 2012 and he beat me by one position he ran at University of Florida cross country Enoch Nadler what a connection you're basically an Olympic marathoner yeah, he's, he ran 2.15 that day. I don't believe it was his PR, and he would have won the 2,000 Olympic trials with that. Well, what is it? Who says this, Hunter? If you beat somebody, you also take all their accolades? Yeah, but I didn't beat him. Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying. All right, so the final person. <laughs> this is getting this ridiculous. Is the final person, sub-220, and this is at the trials. More people came in without it, was uh, 55th place. 55 people were sub-220 in 2022? And not in 2020 and nine were in 2000. What's the ratio there? Six times the number of people. Just ridiculous. So you're slow guys is what I'm telling you is you're just slow and it's okay. And so am I. And so is Bracken because that statistic, right? Yeah, it's fine. It's just fine. And you know what? I'm still going to put my running shoes on and try my damn best every day, no matter what, because it matters to me. I don't care about that. You That's shouldn't right. either. All right. What do we want to do? Where do we want to go from here, Bracken? Let's just wrap it up. Overall, state of sports fantastic. We this is the best era to be alive in and try to be a runner. You can mm-hmm. stay healthier longer. You can train better. You can get faster. You can run in more comfortable shoes. You have better gear. It's better looking. It's made for your body type. You can fuel better. You can hydrate more intelligently. You have more races than have ever been around to run. You can get there easier. And you can find podcasts like this. In 30 years, 
You're going to look back and you're going to look at the bullet points or the highlight reels, uh, the timeline and development of endurance athletics running in particular, and it's going to point you first in the mid-70s. It's going to then next jump to the late 90s and early 2000s, and then it's going to forward all the way to this era here, 2020 to 2020, who knows when. It's going to be the third major bullet point in the progression of our sport, and we're in it right now, and, and it's only in its best place. So as far as performance is going, I guess we're just trying to hack why today. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, so maybe if you have something to be thankful for this week, since this is Thanksgiving, it's that we live in this era of sport. We live in this era of running. There's never been a better time to do it. How lucky are we to feel so bad about our own running comparatively? <laughs> How blessed are we? Well, we started later than usual, and it's going. sun's going down. Are you seeing the reflection, the reflective patches come off on these shoes behind me? Uh, yeah, I am. Yeah, you got a couple reflectors there. Nice. I didn't done. even know about hey, those. Hey, what? What? Uh, we're done officially teaching you anything or babbling at you. What? Uh, what shoes are you wearing today? Uh, Solomon uh, Pulse, the S Lab Pulsar Soft Grounds. Right. Now, I'm a big believer you shouldn't be wearing your running shoes for anything other than running. But I guess if you're going to wear them for anything else, it's also podcasting. So, well, here's my take on that, Kirk. I'm not walking around in them. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting down wearing them, but it's a small. And then I just like push on the stool or on the ground a little bit. Because they're only for quality workouts and racing, it actually helps the materials soften up and break in slightly without taking pounding. You should write a book on it. Yeah, I'm going to. Why you should wear your racers to the office by Bracken Cracker. <laughs> See go. how many people buy that. Two. Two? Me and you? Uh, I was just counting the copy I bought for you. Oh, uh, we're done with this podcast, yeah? Should we be done? I just got something up. I just coughed something up. Took two hours and I got one thing up. Way to go, man. All right. It wasn't for lack of work. Yeah. You have a lot of editing to do. Or maybe you won't. We'll find out. I'm going to have to. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy your holidays. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.